Good morning. Let's turn, please, to Acts chapter 12. We took a sidebar last week and looked at the uh, book of James. This morning we want to get back into the study of the book of Acts, and we ended with chapter uh, 11. We're now beginning to go to chapter 12. In fact, we'll take, Lord willing, the uh, entire chapter this morning. There really is no other book like the book of Acts in the Bible. It's, it's an amazing book in not only what it teaches, but the way uh, it teaches us. Um, it's a history book, but it's like no other history book you've ever read. It's, uh, it teaches on so many different subjects. In fact, I remember years ago when I was teaching in the intern program, <clears throat> and it was my responsibility to teach the book of Acts, um, I would actually divide it up among the students that we had, and although we would go through um, teaching the book of Acts verse by verse each, each day, I would give them as their homework uh, to take a study in the book of Acts on a particular theme or subject. And so if you were to just trace preaching through the book of Acts, or to, to, if you were to uh, trace um, persecution through the book of Acts, or church growth through the book of Acts, or prayer through the book of Acts. There are some amazing uh, studies to be had in the book of Acts. This is the early church as it begins to flourish and to blossom, and there's so many lessons to learn for us today. And we're going to learn, I hope, one or two of those lessons this morning in Acts chapter 12. Now, this morning, <clears throat> I'm going to read the um, passage in spurt so little parts of it at a time and then we'll make comment on it as we go Um, it's so we'll start at chapter 12 verse 1 now about that time herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church then he killed james the brother of john with the sword and because he saw that it pleased the jews he proceeded further to seize peter also Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, Let's stop there for a minute. About this time, what has happened up to date? Well, the church has grown. The church is facing persecution, particularly in Jerusalem. We had the death of um, the first martyr, Stephen. Uh, Many of the believers uh, had to make some very tough decisions about life and what they were going to do for the rest of their life as they could see it. Some of them decided to stay in Jerusalem. Some of them decided to move out of Jerusalem to other areas to avoid some of the persecution that was taking place. In either case, it was a difficult decision. One decision to stay probably meant death or at least a very difficult life uh, living there. And the other would be to leave everything that you owned and everything that you had and everything that you knew and leave altogether and go to a new place with nothing. And so it was a very difficult decision that they had to make. We have little clues of that in the um, epistle of James. And so it was a time of great, uh, the beginning uh, uh, again of a time of great persecution. You remember that Saul also had uh, come to light before this time, and he was breathing threats and murders against the church. He would go into homes where they would meet, and he would uh, take uh, and bind both men, women, and children, 
and his intent was to kill or to stop in its tracks this early, uh, this uh, fledgling church. And uh, he, he was bent on doing that. The Lord obviously saved him, but there were still others like Saul who wanted to see the church end. And so news of this, of course, spread to Herod the king. And uh, Herod, let me just pause for a minute here about Herod. Herod is a name that is used in the New Testament of many rulers. So just because you read the name Herod, don't always assume it's the same guy. He's a relative, but he's not the same guy, okay? So there are several Herods that we read about in the New Testament. This particular Herod is named Herod Agrippa I. And he had a... Um, uh, his grandfather was Herod the Great. He's the Herod that most of us think about when we think of the word Herod or the name Herod. Herod the Great. Herod the Great had the largest territory uh, that he ruled over, and that's partly why he was called Herod the Great. But um, this was actually his grandson. So there was another Herod before him, and this was Herod the Great's grandson. Herod the Great was in place and died shortly after the birth of Jesus. This Herod was the only Herod to actually have royalty bestowed upon him. He was actually, uh, there was a time of trouble um, among the Herods, and this one was actually sent back to Rome where he was raised. And uh, he got into the politics of Rome, and, uh, and this territory that he ruled over was actually given to him and the title of king was uh, uh, given to him as well. So it was royalty, he was royalty in that sense. And he also ruled an area that was about equal to his grandfather. So he had a very large territory, a mixed group of people, and he tried, as many of the Herods did, to please those that would make for peace. And in this particular case, um, it seems that he was a very clever politician. And all that is associated with being a clever politician was also associated with his life. It seemed also, if you read, there's not much given about him in the Bible. In fact, this is the only point in the Bible where he is spoken of, just in chapter 12. Um, so you have to go to outside history to get a little more information. But it seemed that he had an insatiable desire to please the Jews over whom he ruled. And the Jews were uh, persecuting the Christians at this time, and it pleased him it seemed that uh, if he could do something to the Christians, it would put him in good stead with the Jews at that time. And so he did. He took uh, the apostle James and he executed him. Um, not much is given about the history of that in either secular sources or in the Bible. And, uh, but we do know this, that uh, when it says that he killed him with the sword, it means that he beheaded him. That's what it means. And so James was the first apostle to be martyred uh, in the church, the first apostle, and he was beheaded. Well, the Jews went wild. They, they were just absolutely thrilled with what took place here. Another Christian down. Let's see how many more we can get. And so um, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he said, all right, good. One notch in my belt. Let's go for another. And so he looked for another and, of course, Peter came to light. He was a, a prominent um, person in the church in Jerusalem. And so he had him arrested. And his intention 
was to kill him and probably behead him as well. That would be uh, the case. But as it uh, happened, the um, time that he was arrested was during this feast. If you read that, um, it was the days of unleavened bread. And so he was arrested during that period of time. It would not have been a very smart move on Herod's part to have him executed at, during the feast days. And so he was going to wait until after the feast days were over and then have him uh, killed. At this point, the book of Acts reads like an edge-of-the-seat thriller. It really uh, is, is a wonderful story. And the story that unfolds is clearly a miracle and one of the uh, most amazing answers to prayer that we read about in the New Testament. I want you to notice the details as we read about the imprisonment and the way God has preserved this to show us the absolute impossibility of Peter escaping on his own. And uh, so let's take a look at verse 4. So when he had arrested him, that's Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So let's go back and look at it again, just briefly. First, we read he was imprisoned. Second, it says there were four squads watching him. A squad consisted of four guards, and there were four of them. So that's 16 guards that were taking care of one prisoner. Now, Angelo has just uh, joined the um, um, sheriff's department. <laughs> Excuse me. And I know that the sheriff's department is responsible for some of the uh, prison work. And they actually guard it. And they have uh, transportation responsibilities and so on and so forth. Have you ever seen a situation like this where you have 16 guards taking care of one prisoner? Not even the highest um, or the most extreme prisoner would have this kind of watch on him. But this is what he did. It was totally impossible for Peter to escape on his own. It's likely in this scenario that there were four guards per watch, two physically chained to him and two right outside his door and um, standing guard. So third thing we read is that he was chained. He was chained to the guards, like handcuffs, one on either side. Now, some of you may have seen this before. 
Angel, tell me, again, you're, you're more familiar with this, but do they ever take a prisoner and chain him to two guards? One guard. Not even one guard. Okay. So two guards are chained to this man, uh, to Peter, and, uh, and he is put into, this, into prison. They're, all, they're in there with him. Fourth, it says he was bound behind guard posts. Not one but two. There were two places in the prison that he would have to pass before being able to get out of the, the, uh, the prison itself. And then, after the two guard posts, there's the iron gates that would have to be opened as well. He was in prison behind the iron gates. Now, Peter obviously knew about the death of James. I mean, that was... He was a friend. He was a, a co-apostle. He had worked together in the same church there and he knew that his arrest meant that evil was intended for him he was facing execution probably beheading now the reason that he was not beheaded does not appear to have anything to do with peter at all in fact peter seemed to be quite calm about the whole thing as i read through this last night again i (laughs) i started chuckling i thought what situations have I ever faced in my life that were troubling to my heart, troubling to me, you know, difficult situations? And how did I sleep that night, you know? And so often I've had, I mean, not that often, but I've had troubling situations in my life where I knew something was going to happen the next day and I would not sleep well at night. And I did pray and I did toss and I did turn. And, you know, I'd wake up after a fitful night's sleep. But Peter knows he's going to be executed the next day, and he's sound asleep. He's asleep. It's a picture of a man who is at peace, peace with God. If you were about to face death, would you be this calm? <laughs> I, I love the story. Now, there were some who were awake at this time, and that was the church praying. The church in Jerusalem. They were in constant prayer, it says, being made for Peter while he was in prison. And God heard that prayer and sent an angel to save Peter from certain death. And what an answer to prayer it was. Now, I believe that Peter was snoring here. For the first thing that we read is that the angel struck him. Okay? And I know that uh, when I snore, that I have an angel strike me too. (laughs) She... She usually elbows me. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. As you read the passage here, it says that um, the angel appeared and his presence did not wake up Peter. And then it says that a great light shone into the prison. Now, I don't know about you, but if you flip on the lights in the middle of the night, do you wake up? Okay. He didn't. Sound asleep, just completely at peace. Great light shone uh on him and he still didn't wake up so the angel struck him and he woke up he seems to be a little groggy here because later in the passage he's not sure whether he's awake or asleep he's not quite sure whether this is real or just a vision that is taking place is he dreaming or is it actually is he living the event the chains fell off the guards continue to sleep they quickly move past the guards who are standing outside of the prison cell 
they then move past the first and the second guard posts and they come to the doors the the great iron doors and it says that they open of their own accord it's the first automatic doors you've ever seen in, in history what a miracle and so the angel takes him and and there's there's uh, an urgency about all of this you see the angel come on let's go get your shoes on get your get dressed let's go and he's quickly follow me you know it's interesting when you read about angelic beings in scripture and when they are doing service for the lord there's an urgency about it and when they've come from the presence of the lord to do some work for him some task it, there's an urgency and you read that over and over again in the scripture and uh it just it's a reminder i think to us that if we've been called to do a task to do something for the lord there should be an urgency about it get it done get it done now Anyway, he takes him out of the danger zone about a block or so away, and then he vanishes. He's finished his task. He's done. Now, Peter, you're left on your own. And so, what a miracle. It was at this point, Peter realized that he was not dreaming, but he had actually experienced divine intervention. How many of you can recall events in your life where the Lord clearly intervened in your life in some way you know yeah the lord did something in your life in and it was so clearly of the lord that you could look back and say wow and like peter you come to your senses almost at at the end of this the event and you say wow had the lord not intervened where would i be some of you may have faced uh, you know death possibly accidents or things like that some of you have seen God intervene in, in other ways in your life. It's tremendous to see the Lord at work. I'm reminded of a story of two male missionaries in uh, Bolivia. One was Frank Haggerty and the other was Ned Merrick. They were with the assemblies in um, Bolivia. And they had a burden to, to reach out to a new town, a new area where the gospel had not gone forth before. And so they traveled to this little town and they began to they went to the open square of the of the town and began to preach the gospel and as they preached the gospel to the the people of the town they they didn't the gospel wasn't received well there they seemed to be persecuted they seemed to be um a hardened kind of a people and so they but they continued to preach anyway and they decided to just keep preaching and preaching the gospel and see what the lord would do as uh it drew near to night they decided to go to a little cafe in town it was not much really you know in, in a little town like that it's really somebody who owns a house and opens up their front room for a meal puts a sign out front you know meals or whatever and they went in and they sat down and they said well here's what we have and basically it was a meal of meat and potatoes and they said well that's what we'll order and so the lady who who was the uh owner of this restaurant cafe she said, well, you go on out for a few minutes and I'll cook the meal up and then come back and it'll be ready for you. And so they did. They went out in the street and I think they preached a little more and they came back and sat down for their meal. And as they bowed their heads and gave thanks, I can't remember whether it was Frank or Ned said, you know, I really don't feel like meat tonight. It was a meal of meat and potatoes. He said, tell you what, how about if I have your potatoes and you have my meat? And they said, sure, that's fine with me. I just as soon have the meat. So they scraped the meat off all on one plate and the potatoes off on the other plate. And one of them had an all-meat meal and the other had an all-potatoes meal. 
And as they were finishing, the one who had all the meat said, oh, wow. Mm, I have this burning in my stomach. Really, it's hurting bad. And so he asked for some water, got some water, and began to drink the water, and it hurt more. The pain began to intensify. And he realized, God gave him enough presence of mind to realize that he had been poisoned. And uh, the lady who owned the restaurant or the cafe knew that they had been preaching the gospel. And she was strongly Catholic and didn't like them preaching the gospel in that town. And so she had poisoned the meat, put rat poison in the, in the meat. And when you drink water, it makes it worse. And so he, um, they left the restaurant or they left the cafe and they went out. Now, what they had done, they didn't know the area. There was no hotels in town. They had been tenting out in the hills, and they put they just placed a, a tent up on the hillside, and they'd come into town during the day, and they'd preach, and then they'd go sleep up there at night. And so he said, I, we need to get back to the tent. So they went up to the tent that night, and they, they, he was just in agony at this point. And they had no medicine with them. They had no way of, and there were no doctors around or anything else like that. And as, um, I, I think it was Ned that had been poisoned. As, as Frank looked at Ned, he said, you know, you're dying. And he was, he was sweating profusely, and he was in and out of consciousness, and, and he was really in a bad way. And so he didn't know what to do, and so he prayed. <laughs> Good thing to do. And he began to pray and ask the Lord to help him and to help his friend who was dying in his presence. And he slipped into unconsciousness, the, um, uh, Ned did, I believe, and... and um, Frank continued to pray and ask the Lord to intervene on his behalf. And he heard a rustling at the uh, tent door flap. And there was a very, very tall man standing there. And he says, here, give him this. And he had a container, like a flask. He said, what is that? He said, that's goat's milk. He said, have him drink it. And he says, he's unconscious. He said, force it down his throat. He said, he's unconscious. He said, do it and do it quickly. And he left. And so Frank was, you know, held his, his head and his neck in a certain way that his throat was open and he began to pour as much as of the milk down his throat as he could possibly pour down his throat. And he said, the, the man had said before he left, make sure he drinks all of it. And so he made sure that he drank the whole flask of, of milk and got it down to him. And he gained consciousness. And uh, the pain went away. And there were no side effects. And the next morning they got up and they went to the town and they went looking for this man who had visited them the night before. And they said, where is the tall man? Where is his house? We want to go and give him back his flask. They said, there's no tall man who lives in, these areas, in this area. They said, no, of course there is. We saw him last night. He came with his goats. And the man had had goats. There are no goats in this area. There's no tall man who lives here, and there are no goats who live in this area. And uh, he said, uh, no, well, we saw him last night, and he gave us goats, and this is the container that he left with us. And he says, there's no one like that in the area at all. And there really wasn't. The Lord has a way of answering prayers. He's not limited to the means uh, by which he answers prayers. With God, we read in the scriptures, nothing is impossible. Was it an angel? I don't know. Does he use angels? Yes, he does. <laughs> he certainly used angels here 
in the book of, or an angel here in the book of Acts. Whether he used one there or not, I don't know. But God is not limited. Nothing is impossible with God. Thinking about prayer in the early church, you know, one of the things that we, we uh, speak about when it comes to the meetings of the early church or the things that they did, the activities of the early church, we often say that they, there were four things that characterized them. What are the four things that you can think of? Apostles' doctrine. Okay, good. Breaking of bread. Fellowship. And prayer. Okay, and prayer. And this is one of the things that characterized the, the early church. Prayer. There's a man, I was telling my uh, kids about this last week. There's a man who died just um, a few weeks ago. If I gave his name, you'd recognize it immediately. He... I learned something about him this week that I did not know, and uh, I'll share a story with you about him, and I'll tell you who it is. He said at one time, the modern church is a prayerless church. And James 4, 2 warns us that we have, not, we have not because we ask not. He said there are two things, two verses of Scripture I want to share. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Second, he said, there is a wide open door for me to teach and preach here. So much is happening, but there are many enemies, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, there are four principles I've learned <clears throat> about prayer in my 44 years as a uh, uh, teacher of a, of a local church. He said, prayer can do anything God can do. Prayer can do anything God can do. And since God can do anything... Nothing is impossible. Second, all our failures are prayer failures. All our failures are prayer failures. Third, he said, nothing of eternal importance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. He's speaking of his own life, of course, and, and our lives as well. Nothing of eternal importance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. And then the fourth one, which is probably the most convicting of all, what a man is, he is alone on his knees before God and no more. That's convicting, I think, isn't it? What a man is, or a woman, he is alone on his knees before God and no more. As a young man... He was um, about 18 years old, and he decided to go to Bible college and to learn the Scriptures. He didn't know what to do with his life exactly, but he knew that he wanted to study the Scriptures and to learn something about God and His Word. And uh, he had just made a profession of faith. He was probably only about um, maybe months old in the Lord, but may, no, certainly no more than a year old in the Lord at the time he went to uh, Bible college. When he went there he went to a church <clears throat> and uh, there was a man who uh, took him aside he, he he met he met him as he came into the church and he said you know what i'd like to uh meet with you and i'd like you to come out to my house every week he says i want to teach you a few things as a new believer and this man uh became his self-appointed mentor and he had this <clears throat> he was uh, an older man 
and uh, this this person would come out and would visit him each week and this man who owned this uh, large estate would would meet with him every day uh, and they would pray and, and he taught him how to pray he taught him all about prayer he taught him all about the lord he introduced me he says to writings of spiritual giants such as andrew murray E.M. Bounds, Watchman Nee, Norman Grubb, Adoniram Judson, George Mueller, Bach Singh, David Livingston, Charles Spurgeon, Oswald Chambers. And so he began to um, devour every book he could by these writers and, and the scripture as well. He began to memorize the scripture in great passages. And so as he started his Bible uh, school training, he, and he went into this, this church, and the church uh, pastor said to him, you know what, we have a uh, need for a Sunday school teacher for the 11th and 12-year-old uh, boys. Would you consider teaching Sunday school here at the church? And he said, well, yeah, I think I would. You know, 11 and 12-year-old boys, that shouldn't be that difficult. I'm 18, I should be able to handle them. He says, how many do you have? He said, we have one. He said, you have one. He said, that's right, we have one. And he said, you want me to be the Sunday school teacher of one? He said, that's right. He said, okay, I'll do it. And so he began to teach the Sunday school, the junior boys class, they called it. He said, it was at this time that I learned the most valuable lessons of my life concerning prayer and he said i would have classes in the morning and then in the afternoons i would have free and from one o'clock until five o'clock every afternoon i would get on my knees <laughs> and i would pray i said wow when i read that i said wow how many days did that last he did that every day for the for the year that he was teaching this class and i said wow this ministry of one he devoted four hours a day of prayer to this ministry of one i'll tell you what the lord did as he prayed for this one he began to pray for his brothers and sisters and family members and so monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday he would pray for four hours and then on saturday and sunday he would visit the families that he was praying for the family that he was praying for and by the end of the year there were 56 boys in this class most of whom had made professions of faith but not only had they made professions of faith their brothers and sisters and parents had also made professions of faith and revival <laughs> broke out at this church i believe it was an answer to prayer it says, I learned the power of prayer in doing, uh, in doing effective ministry. The early church bathed its work in prayer. You know, I, I think of today, never have we had more conveniences, more free time, and less prayer time. You know, and I think about some of the early church and some of the, the um, churches in, in a past generation and people in past generations the quantity of time that they spent in prayer uh, makes my prayer life look anemic. In fact, I'm rebuked by a man who spent four hours a day in prayer for a Sunday school class of one. And I, I really, 
find it challenging personally to look at people like this who are who the Lord uses and has used over the years uh, in in uh, answer to prayer. The question I think is this: knowing what the Lord has done in my life, knowing what the Lord has done in your life, seeing the way the Lord has answered prayers in the past, why don't we pray more? So Peter escaped from prison, and it was because the church was praying. And so the first thing he did was he went back to the church. So when he had considered this, verse 12, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. <laughs> now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. This is an amazing story of answered prayer and here is a church that has devoted itself to prayer it says constant prayer meaning that while peter slept they were praying and they were asking the lord i'm sure they were asking the lord to deliver peter to bring him back to them and the lord answers the prayer and there's peter it's me Peter, the one you're praying for, I'm standing at your door. I don't believe it. So they send Rhoda. Rhoda answers the door. He's really there. I saw him with my two eyes. Please answer. Go get him. We don't believe you. You're nuts, Rhoda. What do you mean, Peter, standing at the door? At the very best, it might be his angel who came to tell us that he's gone or something like that. That, that, was, that was the attitude. Wow. Ever been like that? Lord, I'm offering this prayer to you this morning. I'm offering this prayer to you. Lord, would you do this? Would you be kind? Would you be merciful to us? Would you help in this situation? And then doubt when the answer comes? Ever been guilty of that? Could this really be of the Lord? They prayed earnestly. And when they received the answer knocking at their door, they didn't believe it. They prayed earnestly, effectively, continuously. They, they did pray effectively. He was standing there. They did a lot more than what we often do. They prayed. They prayed through the night, as far as I can tell. They had a hard job believing uh, that they had received an answer to prayer. But God was gracious anyway. You know, and that's the great thing about prayer is that you know, I know the scripture says you have not because you ask not. And oftentimes I think we do miss God's blessing in our life. I mean, it's very clear in James, it says that. But I think more often than not, the Lord answers anyway, because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind. And it has far more to do with his character than it has to do with our prayer. This must have been a rebuke to them. But what an encouragement it would be too. I think one of the greatest motivations 
in prayer is answers to prayer, don't you? You know, when the Lord has answered a prayer, and uh, we, are, we are motivated to pray all the more. Well, what happened next? Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter, I guess. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and stayed there. Herod held the guards accountable for Peter's escape and had 16 men executed because they did not do what they were supposed to do. Those guards were accountable to a higher authority, Herod, and they lost their lives because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now the story transitions to Herod. And Herod Agrippus, who is also accountable to a much higher authority, he is accountable to God himself. He had executed one of God's servants. And now he was about to do something that he was not supposed to do. And God slew him. Let's read about it. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Well, let me just stop here for a minute. Blastus was a... Uh, uh, a right-hand man of, of uh, Herod at this time. And the people of Tyre and Sidon, uh, you know, they were, there was trouble. And uh, Herod was ruler over that territory, but the idea was that, that they weren't on good terms right now with Herod. And, uh, but, but the people of Tyre and Sidon were concerned because it was through Herod that their food chain, their, their food supply came. And so if they were on bad terms with him, all they'd have to do is cut off the food supply and they'd all die. And so they, they weren't stupid. They realized that they needed to eat and they needed to live. And so they kind of manipulated uh, Herod's entourage and worked with Blastus to try to bring about a terms of peace so that there might be a food supply uh, to them. And so as the story unfolds, Herod decided there was a lot of pomp and circumstance and pomp and ceremony associated with the Herods. And so he wasn't going to just say, okay, well, that's fine. You can just go ahead and keep the food supply going. He wanted to present himself and what a great person he was and wonderful he was in, in actually even listening to them and hearing them and doing this for them. And so he, verse 21, on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Just blah, 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 blah. And they're all shouting in the background because, of course, they're wanting his favor. They're saying, the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And they kept saying that. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Agrippa, Herod Agrippa and his deputies. This is, um, we take this not from what it says here in the scripture, but from secular sources at the time. I believe it was um, the historian Josephus who, who said this. He came to the seaside city of Caesarea to celebrate games. Now, he was a, a politician who was trying to gain favor 
with the Roman government. And uh, there's a man named Claudius that he was trying to um, uh, be in good uh, standing with at the time. And so he had these games uh, in, in this town, Caesarea, and they all came out to this games to, that he put on for Claudius. Early in the morning of the second day of the celebration, the king presented himself to the people clad in a garment made wholly of silver and of a texture truly wonderful. When the sun's rays touched his dress, the reflections shone out after a surprising splendor, Josephus says. And as he gave his speech, the people exclaimed that he was a god and that the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their flattery. And it was at this time that the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he died. Herod died. The church grew. And uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas at this time had fulfilled their ministry in Jerusalem. Remember, they had come to Jerusalem for a purpose. The people, the, the uh, Christians in Jerusalem were suffering uh, financially. They were suffering from uh, um, famine. And they came to bring a gift to them from the other church in Antioch. And uh, they had fulfilled their ministry there. And then they returned to, to Antioch. They brought with them a man named John Mark. And later in the gospel, in, in the book of Acts, I should say, John Mark, we read about him. We'll start reading about him next week when uh, Paul goes out on the first missionary journey. We'll read about him again later when, um, towards the end of his life. I want to read a couple of passages to you, though, this morning about this whole idea of giving glory to God. You know, I don't know why a man like Herod, he is a man who is just flesh and bones. He is a man of dust. And he puts on a silver suit and he thinks he's something special. And people do that today, don't they? They put on clothes. You know, we even have the phrase, clothes make the man. Really? You know? You're going to like the way you look. You ever heard that one? You know? And we're so caught up in the body beautiful. Look at me. Aren't I something special? And we do that with hair. We do that with makeup. We do that with clothing. We do that with styles as if we're something important, something special. And then we like to add letters after our names as if those are important and special. You know, look at me. I am Dr. So-and-so, Ph.D., da-da-da-da-da, da-da. And the more letters after your name, the more important you are and the more honor you should receive. And then there are those who would rather glorify themselves by how buff they are. You know, they work out and, and you know, look at the biceps, look at the triceps, look at the muscles nobody even knew we had, you know, bulging. And they, they consider their strength to be something of great importance. And look at me for how wonderful I am. Or fame. You know, there are people who are so caught up in, in being famous, being somebody, being recognized, being known, being acknowledged. But the Bible is very clear about where all of that glory belongs. And it belongs only to God. There's no one else who deserves that kind of recognition 
that kind of accolade, that kind of applause from men. It's God and God alone. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, it says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God makes it very plain. Glory, honor, recognition belongs to Him and to Him alone. To God be the glory. And so for Herod to, to accept the praise of men like he did without rebuking them was really stealing glory from God, was taking praise that was due to God and taking it for himself. There is a name. We, we, uh, Dave had a devotional this morning, and he quoted from the passage in Philippians about the great condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remembered the Lord this morning about what he did for us in coming to this earth and dying for us. But the end of that passage reminds us of the great exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a name above every name, and that name is Jesus, not Herod. It is a name that is above every name. That name is Jesus, and it's not our name. The glory does not belong to us. The glory belongs to Him. That at the name of Jesus, therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name, the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is is lord to the glory of god the father you want to bring glory to god worship jesus glorify jesus jeremiah 9 says this thus says the lord let not the wise man glory in his wisdom let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory in his riches but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. Rick brought to our attention another aspect of what the Lord is doing in the book of Acts. And I want to turn there just to key in on one phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 It is interesting to see those whom the Lord uses in his ministry and his work. It says in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. When we stand before the Lord, in fact, when we bow before the Lord, we are not going to be able to present ourselves as saying, look, Lord, you are really lucky to have me. I mean, just look at this. Okay? None of us will stand with that kind of an attitude. We will bow the knee and say, Lord, I was nothing, and you were everything. 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who because who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If there be any praise, we're singing this song in the uh, morning class, if there be any praise, if there be any glory, if there be any worship, if there be any uh, accolades, if there be any applause, let it go to him to him alone any praise say to god be the glory let's give him thanks lord as we come before you this morning we come before you as dust as worms lord we are nothing and apart from you we are absolutely nothing we thank you lord for all that you've done for us we thank you for every thought you've had uh, of us and concerning us, Lord. We thank you that you went to the cross and you died for us and paid our sin's awful price. But Lord, we recognize that the work of salvation, the work of redemption, the work of sanctification, the work of it, of it all, it, all of the glory for anything that has happened to us, Lord, it all belongs to you. And your name is to be praised. Lord, we want to worship you because you are Lord. We want to glorify you, glorify the Father as well in what he has done for us. Lord, we come before you and we bow the knee and we say, Lord, take this life, take these hands, take these feet, take these hearts. And Lord, use them for your glory. Let there be no praise that comes to us, but that, Lord, it might be reflected or deflected from us to you we pray lord that we might bring you all the glory lord let our lives be lives that are uh, ones that are filled with humility recognizing clearly who we are adoration recognizing clearly who you are and lord we pray that we might live lives that are lives that bring you honor bring you glory bring worship to your name pray lord that you might speak to us also concerning our lives of prayer lord as we think of the early church and the way that you spoke to the uh or the the, the events that that you um acted upon in in releasing peter from prison the way you went about doing that the impossibility of the situation yet lord we see clearly that with god all things are possible Lord, forgive us for being anemic in prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for not taking the time that we should in prayer, thinking, Lord, that somehow we can accomplish your work without you. And, Lord, we just pray that you would instill in us a deep longing and a deep desire to spend much time in prayer with you. Lord, we cry out to you for answers to prayer that uh, further your kingdom and bring honor and glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name.